Well, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter. We're going to be in chapter 1 again this morning, starting in verse 17. And I want to talk to you on the subject, living with fear. Living with fear. How would you feel if I told you that God wants you to live with fear? Live with fear. How, how do those words fall on your ears and fall on your heart? After all, when we think about fear, we think about uh, an emotion where we feel endangered for our well-being to, to some degree or another, right? I mean, uh, who, who among us are, are maybe uh, fearful of little tiny spiders. Anybody fearful of spiders? Anybody just want to have the honesty and the courage to admit that? Okay, we have a few hands. I appreciate the honest folk in in the room today. Um, So, so, you know, we fear little spiders or maybe uh, anyone fear, you know, professors or supervisors at work. Anyone just kind of, man, I could tell you stories of my college days. There was this one professor, microeconomics, man. He just, he put the hurting on me all semester. Um, I'm not, you know, Clearly, I was a brilliant, you know, guy, and, and it was his fault, but, um, you know, just, just dreaded going into that class, you know, uh, every, uh, every week. Um, or or maybe, maybe there's greater fears, like the fears of unfulfilled dreams, or maybe the fear of even death itself. Fears can, can affect us in significant ways, ranging in effect from annoyance to paralysis. So why am I saying that God wants us to live with fear? Well, what the Bible tells us is that there is a different kind of fear. There's another kind of fear that is a virtuous type of fear. It's a fear that actually blows wind at our back to help us live the lives that God intends for us. I'm talking about the fear of God. This fear of God is the kind of fear that can overrule and push out every other fear in our lives lives. And this is the topic that Peter is going to encourage us on today from 1 Peter 1 verses 17 through 21. We saw in the early weeks in this Keep Moving series that God is the God who brings us salvation through Christ. And last week we looked at how when we're in awe of God's salvation, we don't just kind of stand still and and, and are in awe and wonder, but we actually move out to live the kind of lives that reflect who he is. And so we talked about having an indestructible hope and living a holy life that reflects the very character of God. But now this week, the primary instruction, the primary command for us is to live with fear. That's what we're going to see in verse 17. And he's going to show us some really valid reasons why we should and can live with fear in our lives in the rest of the verses. So if you would, follow along with me as I read 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 17 through 21. This is what Peter writes. One of Jesus' closest disciples, he says, And if you call on him as Father, who judges 
impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. This, this section of 1 Peter chapter 1 teaches us that the fear of God produces gospel godliness, right? You might want to write that down. The fear of God produces gospel godliness. Again, we see this in two parts. He gives us this instruction to live with fear in verse 17, but then in verses 18 through 21, he reinforces that instruction by giving reasons for why we can live with fear. So the first thing I want you to see from verse 17 is that we should fear God to honor God. Fear God to honor God. What are we talking about when we're talking about the fear of God? For so many people in our culture, the, the, the thing that comes immediately to mind is an expensive, you know, uh, Clothing apparel line. Doesn't anyone know what I'm talking about? Fear of God clothing. Maybe you've seen it. I mean, talking about some really nice gear. I see some, some, some of our college students shaking their heads. I don't know how they would have money to, you know, pay for it. But, um, you know, it's like that's sometimes what people think about when they hear fear of God. And not one of the key biblical concepts that we see referenced in Scripture over 150 times. You know, in my own journey, I have to admit that this was one of the hardest concepts for me to grasp. Why? Because, again, when we hear fear, we, we just immediately think of the things that we fear that endanger our well-being. And so it's counterintuitive to think about fear being a good thing and not a bad thing. We start to, to question when we hear fear God. God, do you want me to be afraid of you? Like, God, are, are you kind of out to get me? Like, should I be concerned that you're just like around the corner and kind of looking out for ways that you can punish me or discipline me? That's not what's going on here. The fear of God does not fill us with dread. We're not afraid of God. Just think about it. Anytime you have a question like that, just read the context of what, what you're uh, reading in the scriptures. I mean, Peter has talked about being filled with hope, being filled with inexpressible joy. How would that square with being afraid of God? To fear God is not to be afraid of him. To fear God is to possess a reverential awe before who God is and what he's done. The best and most simple definition of the fear of God is reverential awe. When we consider that God is infinitely majestic, it does something to, to, to our emotions and to our state of mind where, where we want to live before him in a way that is different than we would without that knowledge of how majestic and awesome he is. 
which takes us to the secret of what it means to live with fear, to live with the fear of God. If you, if you want to grow in the fear of God, here's the secret. You keep looking at God and discovering who he is. It's, it's, it's as we see who he is that we will grow in this proper response of carrying a healthy fear of God in our lives. And Peter, in this one verse, verse 17, he, he talks about how God is both a holy father and a holy judge. And these realities of God as father and God as judge should help motivate us to live our lives with the fear of God. You notice that I said holy father and holy judge. He's continuing his thought from uh, verses 15 and 16 where uh, he encourages them in verse 15, but as he who called you is holy, so also you be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Are we surprised that this command to fear God comes right on the heels of him saying, yes, God is holy. That means there is no one else like God. God is utterly incomparable. God alone is creator. Everything else and everyone else is created. God alone is perfect. Everyone else and everything else is imperfect. God alone is glorious. God alone is infinite in all his ways. God alone is eternal. God alone is immutable. That means he never changes. God alone is self-existent, self-dependent. He needs nothing. God alone is omniscient, all-knowing, omnipotent, He's, he, he has all power. God alone is omnipresent. He's everywhere present. Right here, right now, God is present. There's no one like our God. There's no one holy like our God. And this knowledge of his holiness, this, this knowledge that there's, there's nothing like him in all creation should inspire this reverential awe before him. I'm just talking about like where we're just taken back and we're just, just in awe of who he is in his character and in his worth. So God is holy, but God is also Father. Look back at the beginning of verse 17. What does it say? And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially. So, so Peter is writing uh, with, with, with care in a, in a particularly crafted way. He puts out a hypothetical possibility knowing that they're going to say, yes, God is my father. Yes, he is the one I depend on. Yes, he is my protector and my provider. Yes, no one loves me like he does. And so as we think about the fear of God, what, what, what inspires the fear of God is, is actually God's loving character, that he has his eye on us, that he cares for us, that, that we belong to him. We are his children. It's like the story of, of 
boys playing at a playground. There was one boy in particular who has been tempted by his friends to join in on mischievous behavior. And so, you know how kids can be. They start uh, chastising him and chanting at him, you know, hey, you won't do it because you're afraid that your father's going to punish you. And they keep chanting that to him. And finally, the boy speaks up and he says, no, I'm not afraid that my father is going to punish me. I'm afraid that I will disappoint my father. That's the heart of the fear of God. We, we love our fathers so much. We have such a high respect and admiration for him that we want to do nothing that would tarnish his reputation or his character. God is our holy father, and God is also our holy judge. God is our holy judge. As we go on, he says, if you call on him as father, who what? Judges impartially according to each one's deeds. God is not only eminent and enjoys an intimate relationship with us, God is also transcendent and he rules over the entire world that he has made. And everyone will give an account before God one day. And so as we peer into what Peter is talking about when he says God is judge, it may be, he may have in mind that God as a loving father at times will discipline us in this life to bring us back onto the path that he wants for us. That, that may be, there may be kind of a dual, uh, you know, uh, implication in Peter's mind as he's pinning this for us. But most certainly he is talking about the final and ultimate judgment that God will give over all creation and all people in the very last day. This is what Jesus talks about in Matthew 25 when he says that all people will stand before him one day and he will welcome some people into his kingdom and with the words, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. This is the heart of God. He invites us not just to joy today, but eternal joy forever. And yet for those who have rejected him in this life, he will say the very unpleasant words, depart from me, I never knew you. This means that heaven and hell are at stake on that judgment day. And I would be remiss if I didn't ask the question, are you ready? Are you ready to meet your maker? Are you ready to, to hear God say, well done, good and faithful servant? Peter's saying, look, he's going to, to judge you on the basis of your deeds. Now, let's be careful. We are not saved by our works, right? We're saved by God's grace through faith. And yet, God will judge Christians and non-Christians on the basis of our works. It says this over and over and again throughout the scripture. You say, well, Tanner, then help me nuance and understand why we would say this both about believers and non-believers. Well, it's because our works reflect what's in our hearts, whether the presence of love for God or the absence of the love of God. See that? See that? So, so on that day, when, when God gives his final judgment, it's going to be on the basis of how we've related to him in this life. Have we received his love? Have we welcomed him to be our father? 
do we want to commit our lives to follow him and honor him? Because we do have this healthy fear of him. There is no one like you. You and I both know that this picture of God as judge is not one of the most popular pictures of God in our culture. You may hear people make the statements, well, if God is loving, then he would never judge anyone. He would never give the just consequences of our rejection of him. He would never send anyone to eternal separation in the place that we know as hell. But, but if you are tempted to think that way, or if you are in just humble, honest conversations with those who have that view, here's the question to ask. How can we cry out for justice against all the systemic injustices of our day, but not want a just God who is going to bring justice in the very it's, it's, not, it's not consistent, right? It doesn't, it doesn't add up. This is what N.T. Wright talks about when he says this. We need to remind ourselves, this is so good, we need to remind ourselves that throughout the Bible, not least in the Psalms, we, you see about the judgment of God a, a lot in the, in the book of Psalms. God's coming judgment is a good thing. Something to be celebrated, longed for, yearned for. It causes people, are you ready for this? The judgment of God causes people to shout for joy and the trees of the field to clap their hands. Why? In a world of systemic injustice, bullying, violence, arrogance, and oppression, the thought that there might come a day when the wicked are firmly put in their place and the poor and weak are given their due is the best news there can be. Faced with a world in rebellion, a world full of exploitation and oppression, a good God must be a God of judgment. Now listen, I get questions all the time. We're talking about salvation and, 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 and the opportunity to spend eternal life with God and the, and the, the, the reward of knowing him versus the negative uh, punishment of being separated from him. I get all kinds of questions as a pastor. And I have to tell you, look, I can't answer every question. I, don't, I can't tell you how all of the eternal rewards and consequences are going to work for the ways that we live our lives. But what I can tell you is that God is perfectly just. And that as Peter says right here, he is a good father who is a good judge who will always judge with impartiality. This is the kind of God our God is. And this knowledge of him as father and judge then motivates us to seek to honor him in everything. Seek to honor him in everything. This is, this is what Peter is driving at, right? In verse 17. I just want to read it one more time so we're all on the same page. He says, And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, what? Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So again, it's like knowing who God is now motivates us to live in a particular kind of way. Knowing, knowing God's pristine character, his perfect purity, now 
leads me to make decisions that I would not make otherwise if I didn't know that God was this kind of God and expected certain things from my life. We see this connection between the fear of God and our conduct all over the Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 6. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God. By what? By walking in his ways and by fearing him. Over and over again, it talks about how fear, the fear of God and wisdom, living a wise life are connected. Proverbs 9, 10, it says it so clearly. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. You want to live a wise life? You want to live a life that, that shows that, 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 that you are uh, devoted to God and, 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 and following his best plans for your life? It starts with having a fear of him. Or in Ecclesiastes, the very last verses that sum up the whole book of Ecclesiastes, he says this, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. Why? For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. In light of who he is, this is how we will live. It's why John Murray, the Princeton theologian, would say, the fear of God is the soul of godliness. If you, if you live with a steady state fear of God, if you live with a, not listen, not just like, there's kind of two sides to this, right? We fear God as, as the one who is sovereign over all things, who, who I will give an account to for my life, and so there is this kind of healthy fear that is not contradictory to confidence, right? Because it's just like driving a car, right? Like we, we drive with confidence, we drive with freedom, but we also drive with this healthy fear that if I don't pay attention, I could endanger my life or the lives of others, right? So, so, so on the one hand, we want to do away with anything. We want to have that healthy check in our spirit that says, no, not that, because that's gonna grieve the heart of your dad, but then also there is a freedom that comes from the fear of God that says, hey, this is what we are to pursue. This is what we are to chase after. The fear of God not only curbs our disobedience, but the fear of God powerfully produces adoration and love to God for who he is. And so I just, I hope you see that connection today. If you want to grow in your love for God, if you want to grow in your daily worship of God, if you want to see that accelerate in 2020, listen, keep looking to him and who he is. And you will grow and keep growing in all God has for you. And it will change the way you live your life day by day. Fear God to honor God, number one. Number two, fear God because God ransomed you. Fear God because God ransomed you. As we pick up in verse 18, uh, he, he continues this thought and he says, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. This so is just like we saw last week. 
Everything that God instructs us to do is based on who he is and what he has done. You, you remember this, right? You, you be holy because I am holy. And now he's saying in a similar way, conduct yourself with fear, live with fear, knowing this is what I've done for you. And what he points us to here is the reality of our redemption. He talks about Christ being the ransom for us to bring us back into a relationship with God. The, the biblical truth of redemption or, uh, or, or, um, uh, or being a ransom, it's, it's, it's referring to God bringing us from one state of existence into another state of existence. I can summarize the story of the Bible in this way. God created everything that we see, and he created us to have a perfectly harmonious relationship with him. In the very beginning, God designed us for a relationship. Are you ready for this? And I know you have a hard time living this out day by day by day, so I want to be really clear how I say this. God made you for a relationship that is 10,000 times better than the best relationship you can experience in this life. These are the facts. These are the, if, if, if we see who he is, this is what he wants for each one of you. This kind of intimacy, this kind of enjoyment. And yet, our first parents, Adam and Eve, they were, though they were enjoying this intimate relationship with God, they, they were deceived through the serpent's cunning, Satan coming in, causing them to doubt the goodness of God and what God had instructed them to do. And so they turned their backs on God's instructions, and they sinned against him. They rebelled against him. And the just consequences for their sin came into this world, physical and spiritual death and separation from their vibrant relationship with God. This, this new reality for them caused their hearts to grow numb toward God. They didn't feel the, the same kind of love for him. His words didn't have a lasting effect on their hearts. And so they were separated from his presence. And the news for you and I is that we too shared their plight. Why? Because we too have followed in their steps. We've said, God, I've got this. God, I know you've instructed me to, to, to live this kind of way, but I'm, I'm going to do my own thing and I'm going to choose my own way. And we experienced the same consequences that they experienced in the very beginning. Jesus talks about it in very stark terms in John Chapter 8, verse 34, he says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. What Jesus is saying is that the bent of our heart, apart from God's grace, is to, to consistently turn away from God, to not think like God thinks, to not want what God wants, to not love what he loves, to not act like he acts. And this perilous position that we find ourselves in is, is, one of, is one of spiritual death. And so we need to be rescued. 
And what we try to do is we try to rescue ourselves. We try to work our way toward our own freedom. And yet we find that we can't. We can't rescue ourselves. We can't run to our own freedom. We can't self-medicate our way out of the mess that we're in. We need someone from outside to rescue us. Someone to do the work that we can never do. And so God sends his son, Jesus Christ, to live the perfect life that God designed for us to live. To die in our place so that now through the price that he paid, with his very life, shedding his own blood for you and I, we can be ransomed out of this situation of spiritual death into spiritual life. Peter says it so clearly, this this ransom that was paid, this, this price that was paid to buy us out of our slavery to sin and death cannot be paid by any amount of resources that we can accumulate in this life. It can only be paid by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so Peter talks about this sacrifice in verse 19. He says, you were not ransomed with uh, perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He, he brings back th- this ancient imagery of the sacrificial system in the Old Testament where the people of God, to express sorrow and repentance for their sin, they would sacrifice animals, uh, bulls, goats, and, and lambs. And they were to bring a spotless lamb uh, to, to, to represent that there had to be a pure substitute for their impure lives. But the problem with all of these sacrifices is that all of these sacrifices can never give lasting forgiveness. Why? Because they were instructed to do it year after year after year after year. Until Jesus shows up on the scene as the perfect son of God, the perfect spotless lamb of God who dies in our place. So that if we look to him, and we receive the price that he has paid on our behalf. Now we can be ransomed. Are you ready? Did you see it in the text? From the feudal ways of life that we inherited from previous generations. What is the cross about? What is the ransom of God about? Jesus sacrificing his life for us. It's so that he would take us out of a life of emptiness and dissatisfaction. A life of, of futility that is without ultimate meaning and purpose. And he would bring us into a life full of meaning, purpose, and satisfaction. The very reason God made us to live. Now, Jesus has paid the price. He's made the way for us to realign our lives with God, to experience all that he has for us, to live as he's called us to live. And so Jesus brings us into this, this new family, this new reality. And it's, again, it's a total a total repositioning of our lives, repositioning of our hearts before God. So that where we were once slaves to sin, now we are completely free in him. 
I love Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, that says, For freedom Christ has set you free. Therefore, stand firm and do not be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Listen, if you are in Christ, you are free today. Free to live your life in such a way that honors God and, and loves the people around you. That's not weighed down by all of the things that are contrary to God and what he desires for you. And so our, our opportunity is to run in his ways. This is what should motivate us to live our lives before him, what he has done for us in Christ. And yet verses 20 and 21 give us even more reason to be excited, to fear God, and to honor him with our lives. Look at, look at what they say. <clears throat> he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. This is how we can sum up these two verses. Before one speck of creation came into being, God had dreamed up how he was going to rescue Like that's, that's, just, that's just like, you just have to say, wow. Like it's almost, it's like almost too good to be true. I mean, I, I hope that in your, in your relationship with God, as you're reading the Bible through the week and worshiping him, that you have these moments where you can't help but just say with your mouth, wow. That you can't help but just be taken back. God, that you had really had me on your mind before you created anything this is what it says. Jesus was foreknown. God's eternal agenda and divine initiative stand behind the work of Christ. We see this in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. We see it in Revelation 13, verse 8, that our names were written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but he was made manifest in these last days. That means that he appeared, that the plan was revealed in these last days. And guess what? You're like, what are the last days? Was that back then? Was that coming, coming in the future? Okay, these are the last days. The last days were launched with the coming of Christ, his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. And so these are the days that we're living in. And, and, and what, what is so mind-blowing is that Peter says all of this was not only for God's glory to point to how great God is and how worthy he is of our best affection and adoration, but the end of verse 20 surprises when it says he was made manifest in these last times for the sake of For the sake of you. It's clear to me what Peter is doing here. Is he's writing to people who were struggling in their relationship with living out their faith. Not, not because God wasn't good, but because the world around them wasn't good. And the world around them kept pressing in and, and, and creating difficulty for them because of their commitment to Christ. And so what Peter is doing is he's seeking to build their confidence and say, look at, what, look at who God is and look at what he's done for you. 
You're no afterthought. God had it all planned out. You're, you're valued by God. Listen, you are so valued. Someone said this a couple weeks ago. Listen, like if, if we were at an auction and I said, you know, check this out, man. Pastor Tanner, iPad 2. All right, iPad 2. Um, you know, if we just auction this, this iPad 2 off, you know, it's not going to bring in a lot. You know, not like those uh, nice iPad Pros and, you know, the thin ones that don't weigh, you know, quite as this uh, much as this. But, but if we were to say, you know, hey, who will give me, you know, 10? Who will give me 10, 10, 15? I never tried to, you know, get prepared to be an auctioneer. But, um, like, how much is this, how much is this worth? What, what, what would this be worth? Whatever you'd pay for it. Whatever you'd pay for it. What did God pay for you? He paid the price of the blood of his own son. Wow. You're no afterthought. You're valued by God before God. You don't have a weak hope. You believe in someone who defeated death, rose again from the, from the grave, has, has glory forever. This is yours now. And so because this is yours, now live in this kind of way. The fear of God produces gospel godliness. And so I just want to ask you this morning, listen, are you, are you living your life with the fear of God? Is, is the way that you live your life day by day by day, moment by moment by moment, is it causing a difference in how you plan your day and the decisions that you make and the ways that you seek to love the people around you? The fear of God should produce this kind of gospel godliness in our life. And so I just want to point you, and this is a way that we can pray and begin to respond to God this morning, to the words of Psalm 86, verse 11. <clears> to <throat> say this, teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Let me read it again. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart. Give me an undivided heart, God. Give me a heart that is so wholeheartedly uh, devoted to you that I will fear your name every single second of my life. So I will live the kind of life that you created me to live, a life full of hope, full of joy, full of love, full of, yes, a reflection of this is what God wants for you. This is what God has for you. So keep looking up. Keep praying, God, unite my heart to fear your name. And you will see what God can do through someone fully devoted to him. Let's pray together. God, we ask, God, we ask in these moments that you would help us see you for who you are. God, not just, not just words on a page, but by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would take us deeper 
so much deeper into the realities of who you are and who you've made us to be that we would live such distinct lives as we journey from this life to the next in a, in a way that is so maybe different from uh, the, the, the ways of this world and the ways that people typically live their lives. And so God, would you, would you help us, Lord, to keep looking up, to keep, to keep asking you to unite our hearts, to, to fear you in everything that we do. God, thank you for the cross. Thank you for the sacrifice of Christ. Thank you for this life that we've been given in him. We pray all this in his name.